You're listening to the Six O'Clock Swill, the booster shot that keeps your immune system primed against the highly transmissible woke virus. For the next 60 minutes, you can relax in the safe hands of Dr. Tim Blair and Professor Simon Collins, the Chair of Virology here at Swill University. I'm Nick Cater, and joining us later from the waiting room will be Sophie Ellsworth, the straight-talking media correspondent of The Australian, and our go-to man on goats and all things agricultural, New South Wales farmer, Jock Munro joining us from Rankin Springs. First, however, to Omicron, or Omicron, as the French pronounce it. Up until last week, Omicron was synonymous with 1960s Italian sci-fi comedies, it being the title of a 1963 cult cinema classic directed by Ugo Gregoretti, in which an alien takes over the body of an Earthman in order to learn about the planet so his race can take over. And today we refer to that alien as Tim Flannery. <laughs> is this the variant which is going to turn us into zombies gradually eat the human race or is it just the latest attempt by our friends in big government to try and keep us all in our place and scared and hiding under the bedclothes simon listen i'm going to be i'm going to be a glass half full here i'm going to say no this is this is the variant that, that will be the straw that breaks the back of our sheepish uh, subservience. I think this is the one that people go, you know, we've heard it before. I mean, there's there's almost no incidents of this thing putting people even in hospital, let alone killing them. So it's the climate change of, uh, of, of virus variants. It doesn't kill anybody. And, and apparently that's the way that these things are supposed to happen. These, these, these viruses, when they mutate, they tend to mutate to make themselves more transmissible, but less lethal. And I think this is the one that be, that hopefully will will turn the tide of of quiet acquiescence. We, we've made so many mistakes here, haven't we? All these lockdowns. I mean, does anybody actually really think those lockdowns did anything except put a whole lot of small businesses in, into receivership and lose people jobs and drive people nuts? And I mean, honestly, did they achieve anything? Dan Andrews has a approval rating of 60%. So from his point of view, they're great. It's one of the most astonishing things to me is, is, is how Dan Andrews has profited politically from, um, from uh, destroying Victoria. It, it makes you wonder about, you know, usually you, you pendulums swing either way uh, politically and you have a party on the right, a party on the left, and then they get a corrective uh, dose of... Uh, of reality from the public, and it's which is always drags people towards the centre. Well, you wonder now where the centre is in Victoria if Dan Andrews is at sixty percent. The centre's uh, the centre's gone nuts. To woke news, Tim, and um, we can't let a week go by without uh, looking at this modern phenomena which is sweeping our society with ever greater rapidity. But how, when did this start? I mean, how long has it been around? There's a fantastic old ITV documentary kicking around. It might have been made 20, 25 years ago. And it covers what might be one of the first major woke incidents in Australian history. This would be Frank Sinatra's 1974 tour of Australia. Sinatra came here, made a few jokes, a few crude observations about female journalists. He described them as $1.50 hookers. As a result... The Australian Journalists Association, which at the time was very powerful, um, joined a massive union movement to blockade Sinatra. He couldn't travel. He couldn't go into state. There were all these. Uh, he couldn't refuel his jet. It was. It was basically a woke movement joined by what was then obviously a very powerful union movement, and uh, it, it was. It, I urge people to uh, dig up this uh, this YouTube documentary, this ITV documentary on YouTube, rather, because it, it has all these journalists and uh, prominent people of, of the time just showing how absolutely appalled they were by Mr Sinatra's awful language. And, and then, of course, uh, having provoked Sinatra, uh, his goons uh, fought back and began beating up journalists, you know, at which point, you know, I'm cheering. Anyway... The, the whole tone of it was kind of repeated a few years later. You'll all remember that how the media treated Johnny Rotten of the Sex Pistols. They would provoke and provoke and provoke Rotten on various talk shows and so on. And then he would respond with obscenities. And then 
everyone would pretend to be absolutely outraged because you know that's what they were after anyway. They were after the the abuse, and uh, this is this was uh, this occurred first uh, under uh, during the Sinatra's 1974 tour. Have a look at that documentary and tell me if there's not echoes of uh, of what we later describe or we describe nowadays as wokeness. I'm very glad that you that you reprised that the theme of that documentary, uh, Tim, because I'd I'd been under the impression it was. It was prostitutes who'd been absolutely outraged to be compared to journalists. <laughs> oh, no, no. There's, there's actually a moment uh, in this documentary where a, a journalist at the time, a female journalist at the time, is talking about how both journalism and prostitution are, are perfectly valid industries. So there, there was a, there's very early woke elements to this. Um, you know, there was, of course, prostitution wasn't referred to as sex work at the time. That, that was the more woke term that came later. Wokeness. So the left, the left are going off wokeness, aren't they? I see Re- Rebecca Solnit in the Guardian uh, says that woke was kidnapped and has died. Once upon a time, she writes, po- past tense of wake left its life as a verb and became a sort of adjective, a term for describing the quality of having awakened, especially to injustice and racism. Like other vernacular words in the English language, woke's youth was amongst young people, but its illness and decline came after it was kidnapped by old white conservatives. I know. We, we're there. We, we stand accused of kidnapping a word which the left want back, I suppose, do they? Or are they giving up on it? Anyway, to, uh, to the other news of the week, which we, I guess we have, to, we have to cover. That's the Jenkins report. Sex Discrimination Commissioner Kate Jenkins was commissioned by the government to conduct an independent review into Commonwealth parliamentary workplaces, effectively the Commonwealth Parliament, and the treatment of women in those places. It was uh, pretty scathing. The, the Jenkins report says that, and, and, and it was, I think, 900 people surveyed, presumably people who work in and around the Parliament buildings. It's a nearly 500-page report. But 37% of people in this survey reported sexual harassment now that's depressing reading of course it is and it's uh, and and it's it's cause for serious concern what it what it doesn't do is it doesn't tell you it doesn't break the behavior down so we don't get told for example you know we know that it's that it goes everything from you know actual sexual assault which the police will deal with if you report it which is a crime to included in that statistic of 37% is for example comments about appearance so now, in, in the same in the same report, it said I think it was an ABC report said that these that these experiences cause distress and shame. So comments about appearance that cause distress and shame. So presumably it wasn't things like I don't like that dress you're wearing or your head is too big for your body. What this melange does is it dilutes the importance of dealing with the really serious, really serious issues. When you when you when, when you equating. When all offences have the same weight in this 500-page Jenkins report, everything from staring to actual sexual assault, you've made dramatically clear why there's a need to break it down because obviously there are categories and uh, some are far more grave than others. Did you use the word melange? Was that male melange as in male? Because, because this, this is all about, this is, comes from the report actually, come, comes from the report that the... The drivers of this uh, culture are, include in, entitlement and exclusion or a male, stale and pale monopoly on power in the building. It's all getting a little bit too much for me. I saw this was big in the New York Times, actually. They, they ran the story quite prominently, uh, uh, shot what was happening in the Australian Parliament. The, the, the phrase that's used, actually used by the, the complainant, or Rochelle uh, Miller, she mentions this this phrase. Um, it's the power imbalance. So what they're what, what what we're moving to is now. You know, we've already got this thing about consent. You pretty much have to get a piece of paper with written consent that uh, at some point in the evening, if you make a move, it it, it will not it not land you in court. But you you should now be asking for can I can I see a copy of your bank statement showing your your salary so that I can be sure that we are on the same. Uh, we are on the same footing within this organisation, job-wise, because that could also be cited as uh, workplace bullying. It, do, it does seem to me they lose they lose credibility by the fact that there are so many 
choreographed and coordinated um, attacks on conservative male politicians, right? And um, I think it's a bit too clever by half sometimes the way they time these things for the worst possible embarrassing moment in a parliamentary week. But uh, maybe we ought to draw a veil over this, Simon. I think we're going to get ourselves into more trouble than the early settlers if we carry on down this path. Justy, Justin Smollett, Justy Smollett, the actor, told police he was attacked outside his apartment building by two men in ski masks. He reported they talked to him using racial and homophobic slurs and said this is MAGA country, a reference to President Donald Trump's slogan, Make America Great Again. This was back in January 2019, very early before we'd even got into covid what where, where's this case going where, 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 what happened since then to jussie smollett he's now uh on trial for for all of his um uh, plain lies this is a fellow who uh, as one person noted is so oppressed being gay and black that he had to pay someone to pretend to beat him up uh specifically he paid two nigerian brothers who were extras on the empire television show on which Jussie Smollett starred. Now, the hardest working guy in this whole case is Smollett's uh, lawyer. He doesn't have a lot to work with, but by God, he's giving it everything. Uh, He's working every possible angle. He's working the homophobic angle. He's claiming that the two Nigerian brothers are ingenious criminals who set up Jussie Smollett Smollett to, uh, to take advantage of him. Uh, how he's going to stand that one up, I've got no idea, because the agreed sum was just three and a half grand, which they shared between them. So, yeah, they're master criminals, mate. Yeah, you, you go for that. Uh, apparently, a police officer uh, during the investigation might have made some sort of what's been perceived as, a, as an anti-gay slur by referring to Jesse Smollett's pretty face. So these are the thinnest of straws, and they're being grasped with the maximum of force. You've got, to, you've got to appreciate the effort that this defence lawyer is putting in. It's, it's, it's not going to end well for uh, Smollett. Uh, he, but intriguingly, many of the news outlets in the US that highlighted his uh, Smollett's uh, initial claim of being okay. beaten up by Trump supporters at 2am in, uh, in Chicago, they're not covering the trial. Not covering at all. You'd think they'd give both sides of the story, but oh no, no. They've got their narrative out there. Trump equals racism equals uh, black gay people being beaten up, even in one of the most democratic cities in the US. And by God, they're sticking to it. So mm. they'll, they'll probably, um, they'll run, they'll give that lawyer a run for his money in terms of, uh, of the defence, I reckon. You put, you put your finger on it, Tim, the, the narrative. The, it is always yeah. about the narrative these days, isn't it? They set up the narrative and it's, uh, it's usually the, 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 you know, the, the, the crude story of uh, white, racist, extremists um, uh, taking on and, and injuring black people and whatever. So we've seen it there. We've seen it in other recent high-profile cases in the States. It's almost like there's... They so want this story to be true, they have to find a case that, that makes it so. It's, 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 we're getting to a stage now where even if a court of law decides something, this guy will still be entitled to his truth. Mm. His lived experience. Lived experience. It's, yes, it may not be technically, literally true, but his truth is that this is the kind of thing that happens. Therefore, in the same way as, you know, Bruce Pascoe's truth is that you know whether or not uh, his 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 theories are totally debunked as far as the ABC is concerned? Uh, Pasco's truth will be that, and it will not. And that's why they won't back down on it. They'll they will never you know they will never actually say they were wrong about these things. But how can you have a lived experience, Simon, if you haven't actually lived the experience you claim? <laughs> Very good point, Tim. What you've just done there is is put your finger on. What's wrong with this? Just about the whole of identity politics. If you haven't been something, how can you say I now identify as that something? Mm. We've got to have imagined experience now as a category. I think so. Why not? The John Lennon alibi. You know, according to my imagined experience, you know, as a as a transgender albino uh, amputee, 
you know, everything's pretty shocking, you know. <laughs> We're touching here on the on the the complicity of media in all this, and in a moment we've got Sophie Ellsworth coming up from the Australian. But first, before we go to the break, we began with Omicron variant. Breaking news: It's been announced that due to the Indian variant Vindaflu, people will now be offered the Punjab. Please start taking this new Indian variant seriously. My neighbour caught it, and he's been in a coma for a week, and he's only just and he's only just buried his nan who had a dog dodgy chica. That's lovely. And now it's a great pleasure to welcome to podcast Sophie Ellsworth, media writer for The Australian and an experienced journalist with News Corp. Uh, Sophie, welcome to The Six O'Clock Squirrel. Thank you, Nick. Great to be here. I, I want to ask you first about what, what's happening with the mainstream media. I mean, the words mainstream media themselves are mainstream now, right? Like people talk about it all the time. I'm not sure that was the case two years ago, but... It seems to me that people are making a very clear distinction between mainstream media, which is, I guess, what you and I worked in for most of our careers, and uh, and uh, other media, and they're not really very trusting of mainstream media anymore, are they? I think there is a, a level of distrust now with mainstream media, Nick, particularly during the pandemic. I think people have become disillusioned with some of the reporting. Uh, we've seen a lot of agenda-driven reporting and and a lot of punters out there feel like journalists are pushing their own agendas and they're not sitting on the fence and being neutral reporters when they're reporting on things such as the pandemic, which has totally taken over our lives in the last couple of years. And I think we've seen um, the distrust grow with the media. Uh, you know, I've seen it myself, for instance, with the uh, reporting of the Melbourne protests and how people are, uh, actually angry at the media for the way they're being reported and portrayed in the media as though they're all fruitcakes protesting when this is not the case. There was a great moment, Sophie, during the um, during one of the first protests when uh, it, you know, it was plainly not lunatics. There was a lot of uh, uh, cameras on the ground capturing responses in real time, some of the events in real time. And while this was going on and people were explaining that they were worried about they'd be out of a job, that they didn't want compulsory anything, let alone compulsory uh, injections of uh, vaccinations. And uh, Patricia Carvalis, the newly newly uh, uh, enhanced uh, presenter at the ABC, <laughs> uh, tweeted that this was an example of toxic masculinity, which is a fairly easy view, I think, to take when you've not been impacted by COVID at all. In fact, you've got more money. The ABC famously declined to defer a wage increase, you know, because we're all in this together. I think people are noticing this, Tim. I think people are annoyed that journalists, particularly at the ABC, have been on full pay throughout the pandemic, have had no uh, impact to their hip pocket, and they're labelling these people who many have lost absolutely everything, had mm. their lives turned upside down, and they're being told they're extremists. Uh, like you said, it's toxic masculinity. Uh, Patricia was on Insiders just a week or so ago saying that the protest was a sign of, quote, she said, extremism on our streets in Melbourne. Now, I went to one of these protests, and if that's extremism, goodness gracious me, it's, it's not very extreme. There are an awful lot of people there, Tim, just really concerned about what's going on. And I think mm. people are getting sick of these media types who are on their full salaries dictating to them how they should feel, how they should act, when they've had no impact themselves to their hip pockets. What is it about journalists? I mean, journalists used to be reporters. They used to be there to report the facts. Now it seems that they see themselves as credentialed individuals with wise things to say about society and they deserve to be heard because... They are journalists. <laughs> I don't get it. <laughs> well, Nick, I think a big problem here is during uh, the pandemic, a lot of ordinary people out there feel they don't have a voice. 
And so we've been very fortunate in the media industry. We do have a voice. We can speak. We can go on various outlets. Mm. We write in papers. We can say what we think. But these people don't have a voice. And I think it's incredibly insulting when you have some of these journalists who really are activists uh, telling people what their views are and dictating to them how they should behave when they're living in another world. I mean, it's absolutely insulting. And I think the pandemic has really opened people's eyes up to how partisan the media has become. Simon. When you say the media, I think you're being terribly polite. We are talking disproportionately here about the ABC's coverage of these issues. Are, Are we not? Their reluctance to cover the protests, their reluctance to put footage on their news coverage which actually gives people a real idea, for example, of how big these protests are right now, is as disingenuous as those CNN reporters who would stand in front of burning buildings and say these largely peaceful protests. Well, Simon, really, I found during the Black Lives Matter protests, they were virtually cheered on by the ABC reporters. Mm. Uh, Like, you know, we're in a lockdown, we're in strict restrictions, but this is a great cause and let these people march the streets. Uh, now, turn it around to lockdowns and people who are anti-vaccine mandates, and they're suddenly right-wing extremists with QAnon links, supposedly, and they're demonised in the media. And I think it's nothing short of disgraceful and shameful, and it's doing our media industry a real disservice. I mean, some of the reporting here in Melbourne was saying these protests, you know, there's a few thousand I went to one a couple of weeks ago and I would say there would have been over 100,000 people at this protest, if not Mm. several hundred thousand. But if you turn on the 7pm news, you'd think there was just a few thousand down there and it was almost run as a brief on the news. And now if you want to see coverage of this, I tend to go to YouTube. I don't even bother looking at the 6 o'clock news or the 7 o'clock news because you know know, there'll be a 20-second grab and there'll be a sneering commentary over the top. I mean, this to me is the big break. I mean, we've seen this coming for a long time, but now if you want information, the last place you're going to look for it is on the light nightly news, I think. I think it is a problem, Nick, uh, with particularly the, the nightly news. And uh, people just want straight down the line reporting, I believe. And that's what reporting should be. It should be neutral. It shouldn't be agenda-driven when you're reporting on the news. Uh, but we've seen this time and time again in the last few years. Uh, We've seen it become worse and worse, I believe, where the media is uh, fitting in with these, in many cases, leftist agendas, such as, you know, we applaud the BLM protests in the media, but if people are protesting against lockdowns, they're an utter disgrace, and the hypocrisy here is shocking. Sophie, uh, you've got an arts law degree at Melbourne University. Uh, some of my um, some of my best ex friends have arts law degrees from Melbourne <laughs> University. It's uh, not a bad place for someone who's going to end up as one of Australia's best media observers. It's not a bad place to start, is it, Melbourne University, to begin noticing how the left and various collectives function. What sort of uh, experience did you have while you were at Melbourne Uni? So, Tim, I did arts at. Uh, Melbourne Uni and then I did my law degree at La Trobe actually Mm -hmm. so I split across the two but uh, look I must be honest it was quite a few years ago now Um, but the late 90s let's say it was it was the late 90s early 2000s Um, but look university now uh, I think has changed from when I was there it's got it's become uh, far more uh, leftist agenda driven even more so? I believe so, absolutely. Wow, okay. Uh, that's my view. And I think, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the universities, I mean, you see some of the stuff they teach journalism students, particularly. Uh, you know, I've got people I know that are in journalism courses talking about the issues, uh, you know, how some of the lecturers, their, their views on, on uh, outlets such as News Corp, uh, uh, you know, strongly advocated in their lectures. I think universities have obviously become... I believe, very leftist agenda-driven. And I think, again, this is doing our our community a disservice. I mean, universities are there to teach, not enforce their political views. Melbourne University, for some years, has had a, a centre of journalistic excellence, and it's run by somebody who's never been a journalist. 
which is fascinating to me. It's a sort of the it's in the same way Bruce Pascoe is um, is a professor of Aboriginal Aboriginal agriculture at the same university. So basically, I should apply to Melbourne University to run their engineering department. I'll give them a call on Monday. You should, Tim. <laughs> Actually, Tim, I think with your with your beard, I think you're, you're entitled to lecture in Aboriginal media affairs. Yes, that's right, Simon. I'm still wearing my um, my Halloween my Halloween costume. I did go as Bruce Pascoe. Yeah. <laughs> but I think we've hit we, we've hit on something here which has, has changed in a in a generation, perhaps slightly longer, and that that is going from reporting as a trade to journalism as a profession. I mean, there are people that, that I worked with, uh, pe- people like um, Paul Whitaker, who's now the head of Sky News, who never went to university. He went in as a, a cadet and learnt the trade. And some of the very best journalists I've worked with have uh, went in that way. Back back then, you were lucky to get a byline in the paper. You know, <laughs> Maybe that's the problem when we started putting names to it. But there is this professionalisation of journalism, which is an, 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 a, 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 a dropping of the skills, don't you think, Sophie? I mean, the, the, the idea that we should just report the facts, unvarnished facts, and that we should report the facts we know to be true, not those we're speculating upon. It just seems to me that those kind of basic standards have dropped. Sadly, Nick, I have to agree with you on this. I think good old-fashioned reporting that should should be the case now it shouldn't be good old-fashioned it should be uh you know relevant in media uh you know Hmm. at any point should be straight down the when you're writing a news story it must be straight down the line reporting the facts going to multiple people on different sides and getting a balanced story but i think particularly with younger journalists i think they come up through the universities They've got uh, their political views and they want to enforce their views in articles. And you see it with a lot of even just the adjectives they use in stories um, to, to sort of turn the stories into almost opinion articles. Exactly. And some of the stuff I see is shocking. And I think that's where you need the editors to step in and go, that is not okay. That is not straight news reporting. And this is where I think the universities let these students down is they need to talk to them about basic journalism 101. A news report should be straight down the line, should be as straight as a ruler, and it shouldn't be bent in a way to, ser- to, to serve a person or the author's agenda. Sophie, speaking of editors, the Sydney Morning Herald has a new one. Bevan Shields has been uh, occupying his time lately in Europe and London. What's your sense of him as a Sydney Morning Herald editor and do you think he will, he will somehow improve what's become a shadow of a newspaper? Well, I, I don't know Bevan personally. Um, he's obviously been in Europe, as you said, Tim, for some time. Uh, it's a very important paper for the Nine Stable. It's their most important masthead. Uh, so he's got a, a big job to take on. Damn straight. We saw the uh, exit of Lisa Davies, which happened pretty suddenly in the last, I think, seven, eight weeks ago. Uh, So, look, nine have been criticised again for some of their reporting and whether they're heading more leftist than they already were, that's debatable. But I think, uh, you know, like any editor, he's got a tough job ahead of him and it's a tough industry. I think time will tell whether he um, makes a good editor or not. I've got high hopes, Sophie, because um, although, like you, I don't know Bevan Shields personally... He blocks all the right people on Twitter. <laughs> That's about all I've got to go on. So, you know, in, ter- in terms of his n- negative outlook, I'm, I'm giving that a positive. What's the future for those papers, particularly the Fairfax papers, Sophie? I, I know there's been some rise in readership during COVID, but you only have to look at the sort of thinness of the printed product uh, to think this is not long for this world. Uh, Nick, as you, I'm sure, would, would know, it's it's uh, difficult to say. There's been a lot of talk for years that the Fairfax stable would stop printing the paper editions. Uh, I still love reading paper editions. I know that more people are turning to digital. But when it comes to the editors, they're incredibly focused on digital subscriptions. People want instant, fast news. They want to access it straight away rather than waiting for tomorrow's print edition to come out. But we still have a lot of readers across all mastheads 
that particular our older readers that do love the the feel of the paper and the actual paper editions. But digital is no doubt the way it's heading. And that's why it's so important that the various mastheads keep up with their digital, uh, you know, that that how successful their digital aspects are of the business because that's where it's all going. If they don't keep up with that and having that instant subscriber-based, user pays, good content, uh, they won't survive. Nick um, mentioned, Sophie, how thin certain papers have become. Yet at the same time, we're paying more than ever for those products. Someone should do a, a grams per dollar analysis of modern newsprint because, and compare that perhaps to the scale of things when the City Morning Herald in the pre-online days and the age in Melbourne. Those things weighed uh, several kilos and you only paid less than a buck for the damn thing. I had a very interesting uh, encounter with an Uber driver recently who dropped me off at a restaurant in Surrey Hills near the News Limited News Corp building there. And I told him I used to work there in the newspaper game. He said, oh, I bought a newspaper recently. (laughs) Uh, This guy would be in his mid-30s, right? He said, I bought one recently for the first time it sounds like a novel event right like some kind of you know out of the way thing yeah absolutely and i said i said well look <laughs> so i said to him why did, which one did you get he said i don't know it was the biggest the fattest one and i said and did you enjoy reading it? i said i didn't read it he said it's just my old man had told me they were the best thing for cleaning windows so <laughs> true story and I, I thought well there we go all those years i spent dedicated to the craft of newspapers. Well, there's there's another item that Sophie can write. Sophie can compare the uh, diff- the relative <laughs> absorbent qualities of the different mastheads and come up come up with her, uh, her her expert guide. Can I ask then? Every time I read something in the Guardian, I get the begging letter. I enjoy the begging letter. How long before they finally swallow their pride and 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 go with the flow? As in, introduce subscribers for the Guardian. Yeah, yeah. Well, because they're so big in the UK, they seem to have survived not having to have that subscriber base. So They'll never need it? Look, I think all media outlets are heading subscriber-based, and if they haven't already, they're behind. Uh, People are willing now to pay for good quality news content, uh, especially commentary. You know, people love subscribing. Opinion pieces are among some of the most subscribed parts of newspapers. So mm. if you've got good content, people will pay for that. And that's great to see. And hopefully more people do support it because that's how our industry will survive. Well, the ABC, just like The Guardian, is so large that it doesn't need subscribers because we are all subscribers, even though <laughs> like it's, it's a compulsory subscription service, of course. I got a question on the ABC, Sophie. You might. I know you you grew up on a sheep farm. I think out up there in country Victoria. I think it was thought for a long time, and and certainly you know the Liberal Party politicians thought, well, we can't touch the ABC because it's very popular in the country. But I think well, I saw some some polling recently that that suggested that's no longer true. That people are engaging with the ABC for less than ten minutes a week on average in the country. And uh, I suppose when you think about it, it's not surprising. I mean, farmers might have gone to the ABC once for the weather or the sale prices, the wheat prices, cattle prices or whatever. Now who in their right minds would bother doing that when you've got an app on your phone? Mm. And we've very generously given them 4K broadband right through most of Eastern Australia. So why would they use the ABC anymore? What's your feeling? Is it Well, Nick, my family uh, is based on a sheep farm near Ballarat and the ABC, <coughs> excuse me, mm. <coughs> the ABC is still very important in the regions, but I think it's diminishing. So I'm just going to have to have a glass of water. I think it is, <coughs> excuse me, diminishing. And I think people are looking for other news outlets to turn to as alternatives because they feel like the ABC is too agenda-driven and that's done them an incredible disservice. My spies have told me about the possibility of an exciting new ABC drama that's now in the pipeline. It's going to be set on an isolated landmass where the normal conventions of civil society are suspended so that the people who live there can destroy the lives and reputations of anybody they don't like by circulating unsubstantiated stories about them with complete impunity. And apparently it's going to be called Milligan's Island. 
<laughs> well, Simon, to take this on a serious note, I think the ABC has a lot to answer for. There's been many stories that have come out over the years that have not been able to be stood up in court or stood up. Uh, allegations have been aired that haven't been able to turn into any more anything more than allegations. Uh, and I think people's careers have been destroyed because of this. Uh, I'm worried more broadly in a media sense that we can just, as journalists, air allegations now about people uh, without rock-solid evidence, without anyone being charged, and have careers completely decimated. And I think that's an incredibly worrying time for the media landscape and for people in society that you can literally have your career removed from under the, you know, underneath you by someone simply making allegations against you. And that is a shocking thing. One of the fastest growing areas of the law, Sophie, is uh, defamation. I don't think it's a healthy thing when, um, when the number of defamation lawyers is doubling every few weeks. We've probably got, uh, looking forward to next year for another, another, sorry, sorry, Simon, I'll just, I'll just finish this thought. Uh, we're going to have yet more high-profile cases coming in uh, 2022 and beyond. Is reform of defamation law something that uh, the media organisations are taking uh, seriously and that various in individual journalists are studying more closely? Because it seems they keep falling into the same traps. Tim, I think a lot of journalists do not understand defamation law. I think a lot of them are far too... Uh, that they freelance too much on social media that can get them into mm. trouble. And I think mm -hmm. for media outlets, it's a can of worms that they haven't yet uh, resolved. And I think defamation laws are incredibly prob problematic for media organisations, mm. incredibly costly. And uh, I think this is something that concerns all media outlets, especially with the use of social media and the fact that, their staff can freelance on social media and effectively have defamation cases against them as employees of a particular company they work for. So defamation is a problem in Australia. It's a problem for media outlets and will remain remain that case for some time. It's almost as if these there's a, now there's a generation of journalists who can't really see where their job ends and where their Twitter account begins. Well, I know you, you talk about the ABC, you mentioned this, Simon, but we do need to go back to the ABC because they have had a lot of issues with this. Now, the difference with their staff is that they are paid by the taxpayer. They have strict guidelines on how they should operate on social media and uh, they have to be impartial. And we're seeing that increasingly it's been a problem for the ABC Hence, why they've updated their social media accounts, uh, social media guidelines twice this year. We saw that high-profile case where federal Liberal MP Andrew Lamming uh, took legal action against Louise Milligan in her personal capacity because she tweeted falsely accusing him of upskirting a woman, and the ABC backed her in. They picked up the tab, and as a result, taxpayers yeah. have paid two hundred thousand dollars for what Louise Milligan wrote on her private or her personal social media account where she identifies as an ABC staffer where she was commenting about a case that uh, had nothing to do with any reporting. She didn't report on that case. And the allegations against Andrew Lamming were thrown out within an hour of police being informed of them or even less. There wasn't even any case to answer. But the taxpayers picked up that bill because he uh, took de went down the road of uh, defamation. And this is where it's a problem. Social media has got journalists in a lot of trouble. And we see this repeatedly with the ABC because staff are breaching the ABC guidelines where they have to remain neutral and they're not. Sophie, um, I think just to, brief, just to slightly modify Simon's point, for a lot of journalists, it's not so much a case of not knowing where... Um, their job ends and where their social media accounts begin. For a lot of them, quite a few have lost their jobs, so where their social media begins, their jobs end. That's right. So if you give me your prognosis on this, uh, is it can the media, the mainstream media, MSM as we call it, can it recover the trust 
of its audience or is it now too far gone and are people increasingly going to be turning to social media, YouTube and all these other things for... Nick, I hope not. I hope uh, trust for those who have lost it in mainstream media can be restored. But we need uh, this across the board. We need this all outlets. I'm not just talking about the ABC. I'm talking commercial outlets as well. We need to go back to straight reporting. We need to be more clearly identifying news reporting to analysis and win back the trust of people who are perhaps turning to independent outlets or turning to social media for their news, which is problematic in itself. Uh, Through algorithms on social media, you spat out various articles uh, based on what your, you know, information you're searching online. So I think the media need to do a better job overall of reporting stories and being more impartial and doing the Australian public a a better service. Sophie, very much thanks for all of that. That was terrific. And um, even though you are from Ballarat and not the far superior Wimmera Mallee, where my own family is from with our um, our elite Marinos, uh, that was that was uh, tremendous to have a chat. We, we really all really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you all. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Sophie. So to China, the Winter Olympics are about to take place, I think, or not far off, and, and a, a lot of talk about the fact that we should boycott them. We, we should, we should the, you know, sensible Western nations that don't think that Uyghurs should be uh, drugged and have their organs taken out of them in Chinese hospitals think that we shouldn't be sending our, our athletes to the Winter Olympics. Any thoughts on that? The thing about the Uyghurs, the Uyghurs, is, the Uyghurs issue has been around for a long while, that was the Uyghurs, the, the, the gigantic industrial scale uh, human rights abuse in China has never been enough to um, galvanize the, the international sports community to do something about it on its own. What's brought this to everyone's attention is, of course, the um, very high profile, uns- well, the uncertainty over the disappearance of this, uh, this tennis player. This, this woman, Peng Shui, disappeared. This is why there's now a lot of talk about should. Australian Olympic athletes boycott it. Mm. Now, I personally don't think they should for two reasons. One, and I think we've touched on this before in, on, on this podcast, is that the only other incidents of Australian athletes boycotting an Olympics was, I think it was 1980, when the US decided to boycott the Russian, the Russian Olympics as a protest. I think it was against the invasion of Afghanistan by, by Russia. And the Australians athletes were given a choice. They could either join that boycott or not. And a, a lot of very public spirited <coughs> young Australians decided to, you know, to do, join that boycott. They thought it was the right thing to do. Oh, they may be pressured or they yes, may have done it independently, but they did. And almost to a man and a woman, those athletes have regretted doing that because for most of them, it would have been their one chance at in, in the glory of the sport that they'd taken up. But I think there's a more pressing current reason why we should encourage our young athletes to, to go to this Olympics because if Greta and Tim Flannery are right, this might be one of the one the last one or two Winter Olympics we'll ever be able to have anywhere. The IOC for me is a greater reason to boycott all Olympics than um, than the excesses of both uh, Russia and China combined. The, uh, when you talk about groups or organisations or nations that betray the Olympic ideal. The International Olympic Committee is is the committee or commission, whatever the hell it's called. It's um, It's got to be at the peak of them, doesn't it? Okay, my case is made. Uh, Australia's out. Good. Well, it's been a very, very wet spring in eastern Australia. We've got a La Nina rain up and down the east coast, particularly inland where normally they're crying out for it, but not this time. Joining me from, or joining us from Rankin Springs in far western New South Wales, as far as you can go without hitting the hay plain, I think. Jock Munro. Jock, uh, uh, welcome to the Six O'Clock Swirl. Thank you, Nick. Nice to be here. 
Jock, how much rain have you had out there and, and what's happened to you? I mean, this time of year, you're looking, you're normally looking at bringing in a rather profitable wheat crop, aren't you? And it's not working out that way this year. No, we've, we've had unprecedented rain. For the, for the last month, we've recorded about 215 millimetres. What happened this year, we've had an absolutely beautiful year. We wouldn't have had a, I don't recall ever having a better year, actually, in an in, incredibly soft spring bringing in these beautiful heavy crops and then we've then it's sort of forgotten to stop raining which uh, many of us were concerned about right back through because we've been having these fronts coming through from the the northwest and we've had this negative in indian ocean diapole which creates these fronts and um many of us were, were afraid that this might happen but we probably didn't think it'd be this bad it's done a lot of damage for sake of people in the city that don't follow this stuff, I mean, what are you looking at? I mean, in terms of your losses, if, if, you've, got a, if you've got a wheat crop that's looking very promising and then suddenly you get a, a load of rain and it turns to feedstock in front of your eyes, that's really expensive for you, isn't it? That's costing you real money. Oh, definitely. We're looking at, instead of looking at a, a bumper in, you know, in above average yields and above average prices, we're now, now back to average prices. Basically, we've probably taken, well, with wheat, it would at least $100 a tonne off the value of the wheat. Mm. Jock, Tim Blair here, mate. You mentioned losses in terms of wheat of $100 per tonne. Just to give people a sense of the scale of what we're talking about, how many tonnes were you uh, likely, to be, um, uh, likely to be harvesting this year? Well, we're average to smaller farmers, but I was hoping to harvest about 2,500 tonnes. So just do the maths on that at home, everybody. So that's, you know, a quarter of a million. Yeah, that's a, that's a hell of a kick to the head. Yes, yeah, it's, 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 um, actually, it's interesting. We had a, because I think most and of us were quite confident with the year, we were, we put a, we threw a fair bit at these crops, high cost of production, and probably a lot of us spent money, um, getting our machinery updated and, you know, buying new machinery to help bring the crop in more efficiently and then to have this. But the other problem we've got that's really, really serious is that the, our costs of production are going to go through the roof. We've, we've seen an 80% rise in the cost of fertiliser. Roundup, which is, we're all very dependent on these days, has tripled in price. And, and I don't want to sound like a whinging farmer, but i just like to tell you the way it is. You know, that's basically what's going on. Mate, uh, you're welcome to complain about it because uh, what we're going to hear six to uh, eight months from now is whinging urban consumers complaining that their uh, their Australian produce costs a hell of a lot more. Well, I think I think you've just explained why. Yeah, well, there'll be huge. We we think probably in New South Wales it could be a two billion dollar hit in the value of the crop, and then you go on your um, on your multiplier effect, which I had suggested to me is about six times. So there's 12 billion. Farmers seem to be getting an increasingly hard time, don't they, from from people in the city, particularly young woke people in the city. You seem to see farmers as as the enemy, as the destroyers of the environment, and so forth. Yeah. How do you react to this? I mean, when you hear people say we've got to stop farming cattle and we've all got to go over to you know soybean burgers or something, <laughs> what does that look oh. like from where you're sitting? Oh well, it's it's annoying, and you just wish you could do more to um, to educate people to understand. You know, like I'm getting a bit older now, and I can probably handle it better. But it's it's it is a shame because it's not quite that simple. And farmers don't set out to destroy their livelihood. Most farmers are looking ahead. You know, they want to make their farms better and more productive. So you're not going to be um, doing things that you think are going to cut back your production in the future. Jock. Most farmers would be fully involved. I, I almost say all farmers would be searching for the most knowledge they can possibly get. You just got to remember with farmers, we tend to be a little bit conservative because, you know, we can, if we make mistakes, they cost us dearly. That's generally how a lot of people become conservatives, Jock. Yeah, yes, yeah. They make mistakes, it costs them money, they become conservative, yes. Exactly, they can, <laughs> yes. Look, it's great to get your perspective, Jock, because, you know, we, we sit in a world here where we listen to the news out of Canberra every day of the week and um, it, it seems slightly unreal to us. H how does 
the events of this week in Canberra with all this scandal over, you know, women complaining that they've been, um, uh, you know, harassed, sexually harassed in Parliament and so forth. How does how's this look from where you sit? Oh, you shake our heads in disbelief. <laughs> it's just you wonder where it's going to end, this stuff. Interestingly, Nick, our wives probably <laughs> shake their heads more than we do, the men. What does Ross say? <laughs> It's unrepeatable, Nick. <laughs> Jock, this is a very towny, very towny question, Jock. You've got this, this, this terrible deluge and flooding now to deal with, but has the mice problem gone away? Is the, is the rain going to actually help with the mice? Uh, no, actually, if anything, it'll be, it, it could set us up for another plague because we tend to have more spilt grain in these sort of years and summer, summer feed. Um, getting different reports that there are, there has been, there was mice damage up in the Liverpool Plains in the winter time, and and we had some issues when we were sailing. But, but I don't think I've ever seen a back-to-back mouse plague before. But you know, you just never know with these things. But um, a mouse plague is a mouse plague. I mean, they're a shocking thing. On the plus side, Jock, last time I drove through. Stopped off with you guys. Uh, you 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 were making a nice bit of pocket money. I seem to remember from the feral goats. How are they this year? Actually, we, we do, there's not many left, unfortunately, Nick. Oh no. The, yeah, we seem to clean them up a bit out of those hills, which is disappointing. We should have been more um, sort of conservative, shouldn't we? Left a few more, let some go. <laughs> but yeah, but that that's been an incredibly um, successful industry, the goat industry. Is that a result of a more multicultural society, do you think? I'm serious. That would be part of it, definitely, yes. Yeah, it's the most um, eaten meat in the world. Yeah, they're worth a lot of money. They're worth more than a lamb per kilo. Any barbecuing tips for goats? <laughs> Tim likes to knock up a good barbecue. No, I've, I've not I've not tried to barbecue the goat. I, my, my go-to is a goat curry, which is a terrific dish. It's pretty hard to get wrong, a goat curry, actually. Great to talk to you. We'll have to come to you again as our rural correspondent on the 6 o'clock swill. No trouble, Nick. It's very good. particular country on the face of the earth has the biggest and best beaches, drive-in bottle shops, scenery, motels, marsupials, beer, table wines, high-rise development and shillers. Ten seconds from now, Bob. Australia? The correct answer! Tim, celebrity news. What's happening to Lisa Wilkinson this week? Well, I thought we were talking about celebrities. We're on to Lisa already? Okay. Um... (laughs) <laughs> so Lisa Wilkinson, yeah, she uh, she made some claims in her memoir, yeah, about the events of the, her final ever Today Show. I think we we all remember where we were when uh, the final Today Show was recorded. Um, most of us not watching the Today Show. In her book, she describes in great detail, with quotation marks and everything, exchanges she had with her co-host Carl Stefanovic. And then, of course, video emerged. And it showed that Lisa's recollection of these events was dramatically at odds with the reality of her final Today Show appearance. Although there have been several articles written since and several interviews with Lisa have been published, 
since it became clear that her recollection of uh, that episode and the reality of the episode are at odds, no one's really raised this with Lisa until last week when a podcast, one of those little podcasts, a podcast going by the title Shameless, which is appropriate, asked Lisa just how it came to be that her memory of this exchange with Carl Stefanovic didn't match the video of that exchange. Lisa said that, um, well, she couldn't be expected yeah. to remember word for word what was said, and she couldn't just, go to Nine sad. and ask for a copy of the tape to back up her memory because no one at Nine would give one to her, which is an unusual situation. I mean, you work at a place for 10 years, Nick and Simon. You generally have one or two allies who might be able to sneak you a little, you know, just email you a transcript. You know, you might have someone who can just help you in the background. Lisa doesn't have any mates at nine. Just an interesting aside for mine. It is sad. It is sad. So, and she, she told this interview on a podcast, well, of course I couldn't give a word-for-word word, uh, recollection because I didn't, have the, I didn't have the tape. But she actually did provide a word-for-word uh, description. She put it in quotation marks, for God's sake. If you don't have the source material, you paraphrase, you work around it. In any case, Lisa explained that it doesn't matter anyway because she was 100% accurate on the feeling. The feeling was accurate. The reality, it's, it's, it's feels versus reels. Feels wins. How would you, you question her truth against his story? You know, this is just the usual... How did we challenge her truth with the, with facts? <laughs> facts. It's incredibly unfair and probably sexist. Very sexist. Probably racist too. <laughs> uh, limerick. We have limerick time. Limerick time. Anybody? Limerick. Anybody got a limerick? I think uh, I think Simon Simon's our go-to. Uh, Rhyme and Simon. Uh, now, how are those a, diamonds a, in the a, soles of your shoes today? Okay, so here's the here's the here's the here's the disclaimer that hopefully will have you guys feeling a bit more relaxed. Because the six o'clock swills legal fighting fund would not cover the costs of contesting a parking fine, the subject of this week's limerick cannot be mentioned by name. But we take no responsibility if listeners choose to in, choose to infer that name from, for example, the rhyme scheme. So here's the limerick. So was it a kick or a nudge? Bruised leg or bruised pride or just grudged? Affairs of this sort rarely end up in court. So the ABC's jury and judge. Very good. Very good. A bit cryptic. A little bit cryptic. A very cryptic one. This I, I, was very, I was concerned, Simon, when you suggested the, the evidence may be found in the rhyming scheme that the subject might be Greg Hunt, but you got around that very neatly. <laughs> well, the clock is ticking mercilessly towards the hour market, showing that we're reaching the end of our allotted time for this week. Don't forget you can email us at nick at radiobcc.com. You can help us a lot by going to Apple Podcasts and giving us five stars and telling all your friends about us. There's plenty more room in this room for a larger audience. Thank you for listening. And we'll be back next week for another edition of the Six O'Clock Swill. People gonna stand soon after they fall. People gonna hear the call. People see the day through the dark of the night. People gonna make it right. Sometimes I'm Sometimes I can't shake this blues for long But when I'm down and out of the fire I know people gonna make it right People gonna stand soon after they fall People gonna hear the call Time we must
Dark 